0: 1st Timothy 6 1st Timothy 6 for our opening passage 1st Timothy 6 and then we'll look at the back of our hymnals to page 935 Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 26 section 3 So first let's look at 1st uh, Timothy 6 um, starting verse 13. This is God's holy and infallible word. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which we... Uh, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And for our Confession of Faith, section three of chapter 26. Says here, the communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead, or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Nor doth their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or property which each man hath in his goods and possessions. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, help us to understand this, uh, your holy word, and understand the rich theology found here in in the confession of faith. Lord, help us to understand and believe that you are God and you are the supreme being that is above and beyond all. And help us, we pray, to worship you in, in right accord. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. It talks about here in this uh, section 3 that some can go to an extreme in this blessed, wonderful doctrine of the communion of the saints. I find a lot of uh, religious, uh, maybe modern Christians, maybe don't stress the communion of the saints like the Reformed uh, circles do. But here it has a warning of taking this too far. It says, This communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise or in any way partakers of the substance of his Godhead, or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Now, I'm not sure of any current religious. Christian group especially that holds to such a doctrine that once you believe in Jesus you're united by faith and that you share in the Godhead. Now there might be some individual theologians who who said that but um, here in, in this uh, section we might discover an area that has a, a little bit of an overlap. What about pantheism? It's a philosophy that some hold to uh, and you might meet people like this who hold to uh, some form of pantheism. Um, the word pantheism is made up of two words, um, all, and th- or pan, and uh, theos, which is God. So pantheism literally means all is God. All God. All is God. Pantheism. Now, uh, I have a definition here from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It says that at its most general, pantheism may be understood positively as the view that God is identical with the cosmos. In other words, the creation, the entire creation. The view that there exists nothing which is outside of God. In other words, when you go into the forest, the soil is God. You go into the forest, the trees are God. The mountain is God. The waters are God. In a sense a form of pantheism was what um, some of the Native Americans held to. But there is uh, something that uh, there are some philosophers and some rich uh, folks. I remember reading about Walt Whitman, uh, who I guess the Walt Whitman Bridge south of Philadelphia was named after Walt Whitman, but he held to pantheism, I read. But it it says, uh, although it should be added that far from being limited to high culture, like people like Walt Whitman, Pantheistic themes are familiar, too, in popular media. For example, such as Star Wars, Avatar, and The Lion King. Um, These shows aimed at children could persuade someone to hold to more of a view of pantheism if they believe what is being taught in those films rather than what is taught in Holy Scripture. So rather than a Christian claiming that he or she shares in the substance of the Godhead, a pantheist, a pantheist believes that all created things share in the substance of the Godhead. And I would say that belief of pantheism would be to affirm something that is impious and blasphemous. Now, to make sense of section 3 you have to look back at what is taught in section 1. Section 1, as a little review, it says, All saints that are united to Christ, their head, by His Spirit, and by faith, have fellowship with Him in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love. That's an amazing teaching, that we somehow as a, in the spiritual union we share in the sufferings, death, and resurrection and glory of Christ. Um, we, If you want to study that some more, go back and um, check out the last, uh, the prior message that we had on this. But despite how amazing the spiritual truth is, the confession of faith in section three here uh, was given, section three was given so that this doctrine would not be taken too far. Um, a passage that we read earlier is 1st uh, Timothy 6:13 6, through 16 it is absolutely key to understand this passage to see that God is above far above he excels above all it's impossible for even the most godly christian even Paul the apostle There's not one godly Christian who could attain to a degree of sanctification and holiness to any way share in the substance of the Godhead. Let's look at this first uh, Timothy 6. Um, We'll actually um, skip to the middle of verse 14. It says, Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. To say that someone shares in the Godhead is to say That they share in the substance of immortality. But this passage says God alone possesses immortality. He alone possesses immortality because every created being, including angels and men, all mankind, every created creature, all had a beginning. We as humans will live for eternity in either heaven or hell. But at the same time, we had a beginning. Not so with God. You could say that we are, we are finite but have eternal life, but God is infinite. He is the one who alone possesses immortality. Satan, as a fallen angel, was a created being. Every angel, as powerful as they are, are created beings. None of them are immortal. Only God um, Our triune God is immortal. He alone possesses immortality because every creature, angel and men, are finite because each had a beginning. So this passage talks about God being above us. He's far above us. He's the king of kings. He possesses immortality. He dwells in inapproachable light whom no man can see. He alone deserves all honor and eternal dominion. We can't say that of us, can we? This verse speaks, we could say, of a term, theological term of God's aseity, his, his being far above us. According to Dr. John Frame, God's aseity means that he is self-sufficient to himself, independent of anything outside himself. God is the owner of all things, the possessor of heaven and earth. He is the owner because everything other than God is his creation. Creatures such as us, we do have possessions of our own, but only by divine gift. So if we have, as God's children, those who seek to imitate God, when we plant a garden, we imitate God who was the first gardener who had the beautiful garden of Eden. And we imitate God in that way. We we do things of that sort. When we build buildings, we create things, we, we do engineering. We're doing so in imitation of God because we are made in the image of God, but that is still being far different than God. It's separate from God. Section three goes on to say, speaking again of this communion uh, that saints have one with another. Nor doth their communion one with another, as saints take away or inf- infringes title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. The language here is, uh, might give you a remembrance or maybe a flashback if you've ever seen this movie um, Dr. shivago And Dr. Shivago, when communism started, Dr. shivago was a rather wealthy man who had a, grand, a pretty good inheritance and a beautiful home. And he was a doctor, so he was able to afford uh, that home. But then when he gets home, because of the communist uh, officials who brought in a bunch of very poor people, all of his goods then get, begins to get divided up. And his house is no longer his own, his own. but it basically has to be shared with the community. You could say that's, an, that's a, an example of having an infringement of one's goods and possessions. I want to look at a passage that talks a little bit about this. Acts 2.43 And it's a passage that some would rather abuse and some have abused. Acts two 43. Um, We'll start at verse 44, actually. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common... And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were uh, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this was a beautiful picture of the communion of the saints here. It was a beautiful picture of people loving and caring for one another. But it can be taken to extremes. And in in history, it's been recently taken to extremes. Um, G.I. Williamson, in his uh, book on the Confession, wrote some very important comments here. He says, concerning this passage, Three comments can be made. He says, first, there is no indication that this practice was commanded by God as normative for believers. In other words, this activity in Acts chapter 2 was voluntary. It was done because people were motivated to care for one another. It wasn't something that, if you didn't do it, you were no church at all. Again, it was voluntary and not commanded. In other words, that's what it means by it not being normative. Second, there is evidence that even at this time, the right of private property was still recognized by the apostles. Acts 5, 4. And there I have uh, verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain Your own. After it was sold, was it not under your control? So the problem with Ananias wasn't that Ananias was being a stingy person and not willing to sell all of his property. The problem was was that he, I guess for the praise of men, he lied to God, he lied to the Holy Spirit, and basically said that he sold it for such and such amount, and they didn't uh, sell it for that amount. That's why uh, God struck him and his wife dead. But in other words, if you look carefully at the passage, it says, Did it not remain your own? The property that Ananias had was still, uh, Ananias and Sapphira had, that property still belonged to them. They weren't forced to give it up. Uh, Another comment from Dr. uh, G.I. Williamson is that, and finally, this attempt at communal uh, property did not work out satisfactorily even in the apostolic age. And he cites there Acts 6 1. In Acts 6 1, it says Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked. In the daily serving of food, so here we have communal living, but there seems to be some sort of favoritism in how the basically the uh, the care is given out or the food is given out. Um, This, I believe, is the key passage to show us the desperate need of the church having deacons, and there is a desperate need. But also, this passage, I think, we could argue from from Dr. Williamson's point is a passage showing that sometimes communal living doesn't work out for the best. um, That there could be be, uh, favoritism in the distribution. Now, this uh, communal Christian arrangement has not done well in history. Um, Some groups have died out. One of them is the the Shakers. They they had a communal living together. Uh, Another modern community is the, uh, the Jesus People USA. The Jesus People USA have a pretty large facility where they all, all had communal living and from a very, a real varied uh, group of different people from all kind of walks of life. However, even that arrangement resulted in sexual scandal, which then was covered up, and uh, it, it did not work. Um, by the way, I mean, think about it. You have one big communal building where everyone lives in this massive building, I don't know, I wouldn't want a a young person, um, I wouldn't want a teenager living in that environment. There has been a movement, believe it or not, called Christian Communism. Christian Communism, it's a movement that has been in history, but it's also existing in the present time. Now, it says here that Christian Communism is a theological view that the teachings of Jesus Christ compel Christians to support religious communism as the ideal social system. Although there is no universal agreement on the exact dates when communistic ideas and practices in Christianity began, many Christian communities claim that evidence from the Bible suggests that the first Christians, talking about Acts 2:44 and following, Including the apostles, established their own small communist society in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if you think that this is just a fringe thing, um, we have a, I believe it's a professor from Notre Dame, Roman Montero, who actually wrote a, a rather lengthy article concerning this. Um, I don't recommend this reading for Sunday. Maybe you need to read it on a different day. It's not very devotional. It'll probably aggravates you more. But there are people writing about this, professors from Notre Dame, supporting Christian communism. Okay, so we have Acts 2, 44 and following that gives an example of the Christian community, community sharing with one another, sharing needs, helping one another, loving one another. But how do we then take this and apply it to modern day? A more modern passage that I think gives a godly balanced alternative is found in again in 1 Timothy 6. Let's turn back to 1 Timothy 6. Starting in verse 17. Okay. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supply, who supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. There's no mandate here that you need to sell all your stuff give it to the poor but if God has blessed you you bless others in a, in a way that is um, basically meeting the needs of those who, who have uh, dire needs again it's not let's liquidate the, the property and the wealth of the rich in, in a church and divide it up but it's when those are in need be willing to share because God is the one who richly gives to us He richly supplies all our needs. God the Father gave us His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Because God gives. When we are able, we give to those in need. Let's pray together. We thank You, O Father, that You gave us Your beloved Son as that gift that is so great that we are never able to repay it. And we do pray, O Father, that you would help us to remember the the good things that you've given us, that we likewise will be willing to give to those in need. We thank you, O Lord. We pray that you would help us not to uh, put our hope in the uncertainty of riches, but Lord, that we would do good and that we would be generous and ready to share, that we would store up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for that future and eternity for we ask all these things in the blessed name of our Savior Jesus Christ Amen for our closing hymn we'll stand and sing 236 to God be the glory 236